Hey, everyone. What's up? <laughs> okay. Um, thanks for coming out. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, for Forum University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry here at Davidson College. It exists to serve you all, whoever and wherever you are. So kind of what that means is that we want to be a place for every kind of person, not just one kind of person at, at Davidson. Um, so that means anything from where you grew up and how you identify yourself to um, who you hang out with and um, who you, I can't think of anything else to roll with. Um, so, <laughs> uh, it's going to be a long night. Okay, so, <laughs> focus. All right, so also, uh, we also want to make sure that you feel comfortable no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity. You can be convinced or unconvinced. You can be a believer or spiritual skeptic. Um, we're glad you're here, and especially if you're new. Thanks a lot for taking the time, um, however you would count new, whether it's the first time um, or the second or the third or maybe the seventh and you still don't feel comfortable. Okay, so this semester in large group, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis tells foundation stories, foundational stories about God and about humanity. Um one particular series of stories that we've been looking at, and this is actually going to be the last of the installments in Genesis 12 through 25, the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Next week, we're going to go New Testament and look at the way that uh, Paul in particular talks about Abraham and Sarah. Um, so like kind of a senior send-off. I wanted to do Genesis 22 and talk about the sacrifice, uh, sacrifice of Isaac, but I felt like that was a little intense for the last... <laughs> Welcome, where you have Goodbye. All right, so we're going to do that a little bit today. Um, but what we've been looking at is these sort of foundational stories, a cycle of stories about Abraham and Sarah. And we've been looking at these because we think they're foundational in two distinct ways. One is that they're at the center of three major world religions, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, the other is that biblical authors like the Old Testament prophets and New Testament authors, like I just mentioned, Paul and James, uh, in particular, uh, call us to step into these lives and to try them on for size, to think through the discuss and discuss um, the decisions and the times and the places of Abraham and Sarah. And so what we get to do, what we've been doing, is we get to look up close and personal the lives of Abraham and Sarah. We get to look at what the Bible calls faith, the way that how we hold up this ideal promise of God to the daily grind of reality. And then Furthermore, what the Bible calls grace, how God handles the way that we handle faith. <laughs> that is, what does it look like when we fail at faith? What does it look like when uh, faith is successful? And how does God meet us there? For instance, just last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 20, and we looked at, the, at yet another instance, uh, kind of a replay of sorts, where Abraham and Sarah collude and decide that uh that Abraham's going to lie and, and Sarah's going to let herself be sold into prostitution. Yet again. Amazing. Um, and yet again, God gives a daring rescue of uh, this feckless, faithless couple. Um, but this week, tonight, we're going to look at a totally different kind of story. We're going to look at two very extreme times in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Arguably like the most high and the most low you can get in the cycle. Um, so we're going to look a little bit at like what 
who, what faith looks like in those situations, but also at God and how he provides in each of those situations. And I'll give you a little teaser. It's unexpected and gracious. Okay, so um, before we begin in earnest to look at these two passages uh, to study human faith and divine grace one more time in these two scenes, let's pray. Fathers, thanks so much for this opportunity to, to gather and to look at your word. Um, I pray that you calm my heart, that you would settle us, um, help us to hunker down, um, to look through passages that have a lot to speak. And I pray that you'd help me to move out of the way so that they could speak. I pray that you would use um, me, use this time, use our ears, use our hearts, use our eyes, and I pray that you would help us to discern truth. Uh, these passages have been talked about by a lot of people over centuries and over nations, and I pray that you would continue to help us to see why, um, why they mean so much to so many people, and I pray that they would mean something to us, and I pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up even as we look at um, the extremity of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a, a clinical Christian psychologist named Henry Cloud. Uh, he's in California. That will make sense in a minute. And he tells a story about one of his clients, uh, a guy he calls Ted. Ted, I don't really know Ted. So um, Ted, is, Ted is a client in this book, The Changes That Heal. And Henry Cloud is uh, telling us that Ted has like something of a Midas touch, right? Everything he touches, everything he comes in contact with, turns to gold. His teenage years, he collected athletic trophies, academic awards, social prestige. College was like flawless. He, uh, he rode a full athletic ride into um, excellence in the classroom, on the field of play, and also in multiple other pursuits. After college, he married the woman he thought was the most beautiful he'd ever seen. He garnered the respect of the people who lived with him in his neighborhood and his family, the working community. He busily raised his 2.0 perfect children in Southern California. And of course, again, maybe because Ted was in Southern California, he was a millionaire by the age of 20, or by 30, excuse me. So 20 would be very early. And his name is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but <laughs> to quote Cloud, Ted seemed to have life by the tail. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it seems pretty cool. Um, Ted's successful dream come true circumstances eroded slowly, bit by bit. His subsidiaries were sued, and he began to get the heat, and he started to take the heat on uh, for himself. His relationships, first professional, then in the neighborhood, then in his family, got more and more frayed and eventually dissolved. And finally, in a fit of despair and depression, Ted tried to commit suicide. And he eventually failed even at that and ended up in a hospital. Um, and he was afraid to face anyone who ever knew him. Thankfully for us and for Ted, Henry Cloud sort of dives underneath the surface issues that are going on in Ted's life and in our lives in a helpful way. Cloud suggests that Ted simply couldn't handle any failure, any loss, any threat to the ideal picture only drove him to further accomplishment. Ted dealt with the bad in himself, the bad in his family, the bad in his surroundings by working harder to create good, to be a success in order to cover up his disappointment and his hurt. Simply put, Ted was unable to deal with an imperfect world. He wanted a life that was all good so much that when it started to go bad, 
Ted felt immediately and hopelessly all about himself. Digging further into his story, the psychologist Henry Cloud uncovers a childhood filled with festering pain. There's a story of paternal criticism. His, he remembers his dad attacking any weakness he saw in young little Ted. And then Ted felt this unresolved, unexpressed anger over his parents' um, nasty divorce. And Ted learned, kind of through the course of time, to never share negative parts of himself. And this led to hiding bad or weak parts from himself from others, but also from himself. Again, in Cloud's words, Ted could not conceive of love apart from performance or friendship apart from admiration. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Ted could not conceive of love apart from performance or friendship apart from admiration. Like, so let me be the first to say, I can relate to Ted. <laughs> okay, let's just break that ice and that silence. Uh, in many ways, it has made this sermon preparation, which was already hard enough, even harder to use the illustration of Ted. As I think about my life, as I think about how to write um, and apply this to my life. Look, not all of me, not all of my story is identical to Ted's, right? For instance, I'm 35 years old. I'm not a millionaire yet. <laughs> okay? Or my parents are still together. They're not divorced. Okay? But you get the point, right? Like, I can still relate to Ted's story. I can still relate to who he is. And my guess is that we can relate to Ted at some level. Maybe it's not personal. Maybe it's someone that you know and care about deeply in your family or at Davidson College. Uh, but look, one of the features that we all share, no matter who we are, with Ted is this idea that we have to cope with radical extremes in life. Ted had to learn to cope with radical extremes in life. Look, some moments, some months even, feel like we've just got the hot hand. We're like in the zone, right? We can do no wrong. Life is working. Life is good. Success, gladness, and joys are ours or for the taking. Low-hanging fruit, right? We've got it, okay? Then, perhaps just in the next moment, the next month even, all of a sudden, life feels the opposite. We're getting the blame. We're feeling the heat. Everybody, perhaps most of all from ourselves, we're feeling the heat and the blame. Okay? And then life looks and feels like it's broken, bad, and beaten. And look, what I want to point out is that as we kind of hold Genesis 21, chapter 21, and Genesis chapter 22 up together, we see that stark contrast of what life can offer. And we've got these radical extremes going on. One minute, Abraham and Sarah are spraying the champagne all over the room. Okay? Because guess what? They have a baby, finally, 25 years in the making. And it just cannot feel better. The next minute, we see a silently grieving Abraham leading his son by the hand to his death. By Abraham's own hands. So he thinks. So the questions come fast and furious for us if we're paying attention, right? First... <laughs> Why would God allow chapter 22 to happen? Worse, why would he put Abraham to the test like this? We've just got to hit, we've got to handle that. Okay, and I'm going to do the best I can with that. Second, how can we handle life's extremes? It's good and it's bad, it's joys and it's sufferings. And I'm going to, I'm going to put this out here. The questions and their answers are intimately related. 
Okay, those two questions are and their answers are intimately related. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 tell us God is in charge of the good and the bad in our lives. God is in charge of the good and the bad in our lives. And therefore, these scenes show us how by faith we live in both the good and the bad well. Okay, how do we live well in both the good and the bad? We see this in these two scenes. As well as the fact that God has a hand in both scenes and both kinds of extremity. Okay? So, look, our past tonight narrates two extreme strands of the story of Abraham and Sarah. I would say, like, maybe, you know, um, I'm going to use fancy words, the nadir, like the ultimate low point, and the summit, the absolute peak of Abraham and Sarah's lives, right? Okay, not just, and they're just, they're also separated not just by tone, but also by years. Um, Arguably, Isaac is called Na'ar in Hebrew, which means lad. And so he's arguably 12-ish years old. I'm going to call him about 12, even 14 years old. Okay, so there's about at least 12 to 14 years separating the two scenes. Okay? And although they differ in circumstance, they share the same God with the same promises. And so I would like us to look first at the circumstances, and then I'm going to kind of weave in both how people like Abraham and Sarah and us deal with those circumstances that are very, very different. Okay? And then secondly, how God works and why he works that way in very different extreme circumstances. But what I'm gonna think you want I want you to find out is he works very similarly <laughs> in very different circumstances. Okay? So two points, all that to condense on your outline. Two points, really. Like how long can this be? Uh, two points. Verses one through seven of chapter twenty one. Uh, we're gonna look at laughing with joy in the absurdly wonderful. Okay, laughing with joy and the absurdly wonderful. Point two, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Uh, trudging with grief in the absurdly terrible. Okay, trudging with grief in the absurdly terrible. That's what we're looking at, and that's where we're going. So let's together first, as is our custom, at the first uh, section, Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7, and then how the wonderfully good deserves our joyful laughter. Okay, that's what we're going to look at together. Okay, Luke, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this more than once. It's hard to overstate how absurdly wonderful Isaac's birth, God's promise finally fulfilled, was for Abraham and Sarah. Okay? Verses 2 and 5 underscore the biological absurdity of that moment. Look, simply put, Abraham and Sarah are old. Okay? They are old. 190 years old. Old. (laughs) Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, I love this, verses 11 through 12, call Sarah past the age and Abraham as good as dead. <laughs> okay, he's, he is dust. He's walking dust. Okay, that's in the Bible. Okay, so therefore the Lord must visit Sarah, verse 1, in order to directly and miraculously intervene in her womb. Okay, what do we do in those situations? I think we do one of two things. When we hear something like that, the word miraculously in intervention and womb, okay? We tend to over-spiritualize or under-spiritualize events like this, okay? So on the one hand, we sometimes super-spiritually take the biological actors out of the equation, okay? All of a sudden we're saying there wasn't a sperm, there wasn't an egg, there wasn't the sex act, which is God. Or on the other hand, we sort of secularize the birth event and deny it as sort of historical at all, it's impossible, 
or sort of with a wave of the hand sort of dismiss it um, as some sort of random or chance occurrence that just defies biological certainties, okay? But I think I want to put this, and this is actually a relatively complicated point, but I just have to say it, and if you don't track with it, I'm happy to explain it later. Both of these postures, both the, both the over-spiritual and the under-spiritual, assume that the natural world is hermeneutically, or sorry, her hermetically sealed from the supernatural world. Okay, it assumes this huge divide between the natural and the supernatural. Okay, but I would like to suggest, or at least question, what if the method of science was actually just a self-imposed academic limit on a discipline? and not the final description of reality, okay? What if that separation, to the, the refusal to consider the supernatural in science was actually just a way of doing science, not describing all of reality, okay? Is everyone kind of tracking with that? It's, uh, it's a methodological uh, distinction, not a, ready? Ontological or metaphysical distinction, okay? Beautiful. Okay, we're right, right there. Let me just like pitch a vision with a quote, and this guy's name might be more complicated than what I just said. Okay, listen to the way theologian J.J. Van Oosterzee <laughs> explains the organic connection between he just this one metaphor between the re, the natural and the supernatural. Okay, the laws of nature. This is his quote. The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislature legislator has laid on himself. The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid on himself. They are threads which he holds in his hand and which he shortens and lengthens at will. Okay? The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid on himself. They are threads which he holds in his hands and which he shortens and lengthens at will. Okay? Lots to ponder there, but we're moving on. <laughs> okay. But look, this passage is at pains also to tell us that the birth of Isaac, a baby boy, longed for, prayed over. Isaac's birth is so wonderfully good. It's not just absurd, it's wonderfully good. Okay? Um, and this is where I have to kind of tap into my own fatherly experience, right? Don't I have to do that to kind of flesh in the details of what it feels like to have a child? Um, can I, like, I have, I'm a, I've been a father for about five and a half years, right? Um, and I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about what it felt like to have a child, or actually twins, because that's what I had first. Um, however, before I do that, I want to confess something so this makes it a little bit more applicable to some of you. I did not like children before I had children. Like, I wasn't one of those people that mooned over other babies, okay? In fact, you know, like, honestly, I just kind of felt like um, I was humoring my friends, outwardly saying cliches of cuteness, Inwardly, I was just really hoping they didn't leave me with a dirty diaper, okay? So, like, that wasn't my gig. But I'll tell you what, like, the minute I saw the half-shut, sleepily slit eyes of newborns, my newborns, okay, the minute I felt those small pink fingers claw closed around my dangled thumb, the minute I sniffed <laughs> the top of my freshly bathed baby's head, Okay? I was no longer pretending. I was no longer pretending. Okay? And what's so interesting is it was, a, it was a moment I distinctly remember in the hospital when I was taking my, my son William, one of the twins, and I was changing his diaper the first successful time and I was re-swaddling him, re-wrapping him with a blanket. Okay? And it was then and there, at that moment of all moments, 
that I took full over the moon swooning ownership of my children. And I told myself, I made a vow. I said, if anyone ever says anything unkind and untrue about them, I will punch them in the nose. <laughs> that was my vow at that moment. I kid you not. <laughs> okay? All I'm trying to say is, like, when you have children, let alone children you've waited for for 25 years, okay, that's been promised for that long, there's something kind of that comes on. You make and enact parental thoughts that maybe don't make sense outside that context. Um, and Abraham's the most tame version. He enacts this vow by keeping God's commands in verses 3 and 4. Okay, God had commanded him in chapter 17 to name his boy Isaac. He does that. And to circumcise him on the eighth day after his birth. Check. He's done that. But the focus of the whole narrative is actually on Sarah. It starts with Sarah. Sarah's the only one that talks. Sarah is the reason that Isaac is named Laughter, because he is named after her laughter. Her laughter was bitter, but this laughter is sweet. And verse 6 really captures what Sarah thinks about the whole moment. Okay, Her reaction to the wonderful goodness of the circumstances of a birth of a baby. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Okay, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Okay. Sarah's lifelong shame has finally and fully been interrupted. And she gets to utter a wild belly laugh that swallows up all her past pain and spreads around to everyone who hears like, well, laughter. But why laughter? Why is laughter what this story calls for in a moment of gladness, a moment of extreme gladness. I like what Walter Brueggemann explains it, how he says why laughter fits so well into joy. Laughter, according to Brueggemann, is the biblical way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. The newness is sheer gift, underived, unwarranted. Barrenness has now become ludicrous. You see, laughter, wild, incredulous mirth, rejoices in the good circumstances, rejoices in the wonderful situations, that they are underived, that they are unwarranted gifts from God. <laughs> Look, think about it this way. Like many of us, most of the time, think again about Ted, Henry Cloud's client. Okay, Ted, like many of us most of the time, took the over-the-top great outcomes of his life that he received in high school, and college, in the working world, and what would it have looked like for Ted to release a God-directed chuckle? Not once, not twice, maybe three times over, okay? Over how good he actually had it. But instead, Ted doesn't do that. Instead, Ted congratulates himself, credits his hard work, and falls into the trap of having to reproduce the miracle of wonder day in and day out at the office, at home, in the cul-de-sac. That is so much self-reliant pressure. But according to verse 6 of our passage, it's God who makes laughter for. It's God who makes laughter over us. The Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son at the time of which God had spoken to him. How do we know when God visits, that he visits at all still? How do we know that God does what he's promised and spoken to us? 
How do we know that things, words like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 are true? That the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. How do we know that's true? God visited an unlikely woman, another. This time a Virgin Mary, similarly obscure, understated circumstances, a stable, hay, outskirts of a small town, Bethlehem, and the outskirts, the very backwater of the Roman Empire. And he gave a baby, a baby related to Isaac, his great, 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 etc. grandson. And he gave this baby to the whole world. A baby who makes everyone who knows him feel so much absurd wonder that they can't help but guffaw. They can't help but shudder, shimmer with giggles, even suppressed. A biological baby named Jesus of Nazareth, who was and is also the eternal God. Okay, the divine legislator, who is before all things and in him all things hold together, and through him reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. That's how Colossians chapter 1 puts it. All things, all things. This is so big, right? From the earth's gravitational orbit around the sun to the sweet spot you're in relationally with your friend right now, to that paper or this sermon that somehow got done. All things. God's in charge of all things. Okay? And this turns everything from expectation to gratitude. To that thought, how good of God to give me this. And from gratitude to worship. How good is God who gives things like this? The Lord who creates, who sustains, and rescues the world through one woman's fallopian tubes. Listen to the way another preacher puts it. J.H. Jowett puts it this way. That is the surprising way of the Lord. He delights to hang great weights on apparently slender wires, to have great events turn on seeming trifles, to make poverty the minister of unsearchable riches of Christ. I love that. That's so amazing that he does that, and it's laughable in a good way. <coughs> but also, we've got to look at the other side of reality, the other part of the ledger. And Genesis 22 helps us so well okay, to look at how the terribly bad deserves our trudging grief. Point two. We're getting there. Okay. Just as it was hard to overstate how absurdly wonderful Isaac's birth is, it's hard to overstate how absurdly terrible God's command to sacrifice Isaac is. Okay. Perhaps the person who wrestles with the absurdity of it best and most famously is Soren Kierkegaard in the book Fear and Trembling. Okay, And I like this analogy he has. He compares an old man's only son to a cane, like a walking cane. Okay, And so he says, and he kind of puts it this way as he kind of discusses what God does in this passage. In Genesis chapter 22, God not only sadly takes away Abraham's cane, Isaac, he actually irrationally requests that Abraham break his own staff, Isaac, into pieces. And then Kierkegaard goes on to question the motives for negating his promise altogether, the promise of blessing to Abraham and Sarah, as well as the violation of the moral law, soon to be sixth commandment, that you should not kill people, okay, especially innocent people. So what Kierkegaard is rightly pointing out is that we have to do business with this idea of God and his testing. That he doesn't just allow or permit Isaac to be killed. He actually orders Isaac's dad to do the deed himself. 
We've got to wrestle with that. Okay? And Genesis 22, verse 1, puts it so straightforwardly. God tested Abraham. He's in charge of it. He designs and instructs the sad scenario. In order to find out how, in spatial, temporal experience, to know, verse 12, two things. He wants to know two things about Abraham and about us. What's already there, that is, we prove what we are by what we do. Okay, he's testing what we already are by what we do. And he also wants to test what what's he wants to test in the way of proving or refining. He wants to make what's there better through testing. Okay? And again, like there's a real easy analogy this time of year between God's theological tests and the tests that go on at Davidson College. Okay? So there's both what? Testing what's there, and also a good test improves or makes what's there better by the end of the test. Okay? Oh, those are the hardest tests too, and so we resent them secretly. Or not so secretly. Okay? So here's the deal. Okay? Before I try to explain why God is not just some cosmic-sized jerk, okay, that's like what I, my burden is in this passage, is to defend God. Um, although Charles Spurgeon says, I would no sooner defend a lion, a roaring lion. Um, I want to say, I want to press into the emotion of why asking a father to murder his own son is so terribly hard. Okay? Um, let me put it this way. There's a Korean proverb that says, when parents die, children bury the parents in the ground. But when children die, parents bury the children in their hearts. You just never get over it. You never get over it. And again, let me appeal to my own experience um, for details. Last year at summer conference, I watched my two-year-old daughter, Millie, nearly drown. Okay, so picture the scene. She's little. She's in a purple swimsuit. She's got blonde hair, blue eyes, having a great old time, splashing. And um, she's on the staircase, and I'm watching my two other ones. Tear goes and gets something. My wife gets something. And I'm gonna. I'm answering a twin. I'm chasing some fast-floating toy. Before it gets to the deep end, we lose it forever. And I turn around, and Tear goes, where's Millie? Where's Millie? And I look around, and she's not in the staircase anymore towing the water, I see this submerged purple blob. And so I start running in water, which is ugly, um, but fast. And I have no idea how long she's been underneath there. And I'm swimming and running, and I get to her, and I pull her up. And I just remember that moment. It's like indelibly in my mind. Like her, the, the, her big blue eyes, they're just flat. And her like little face is making an O like of surprise. And there's this moment where I'm holding her up, I'm shaking her, I'm patting her back, but I think, what have I done? I was in charge, this is my fault. And then all of a sudden she starts coughing and spluttering and her eyes start blinking and she comes back to life. Um, which is just an amazing moment of just pure relief. But I think what helps me to kind of understand that and what I want you to step into is what it feels like to be Abraham those three days between uh, Beersheba and Mount Moriah, when you're not just kind of accidentally causing the death of your child or near death of your child in my case, you're causing the intentional death by your own hands and your God's told you to do it. And how much that feels emotionally heavy and how much that tempers the whole scene. 
Okay, and I really think it makes us like have to read between the lines of the scene. Okay, we have to read between the lines of these kind of like very terse descriptions of Abraham's actions and God's words. It's almost possible for us not to want to sort of insert what's really going on here. Okay, for instance, the Jewish commentary Rashi imagines the verse two as a dialogue. I love this. God says to Abraham, your son, and Abraham says to God, I have two sons. And then God says, you're only one. And Abraham says, this one, Ishmael, is the only one to his mother, and this one, Isaac, is the only one to his mother. And God said, whom you love. And Abraham to God says, I love both of them. And then God finally says, Isaac. <laughs> okay? So, like, we have to kind of, like, imagine this back and forth, okay? Um, and I can't, you know, Abraham couldn't help but picture what a burnt offering was. He saw this in the ancient Near East. He knew what it was. He knew that you slit his throat until the blood drained. He knew that you ripped the limbs off one by one, and he knew that you burnt the body until it was an ash sheep. That was in his mind's eye, thinking about his son. And then there's this staccato sound of verse three where he's gathering this like kind of preparation. It's a slow, detailed preparation. And it's so fascinating, if you don't read it close, you won't notice this, but it's sort of out of order. He gets all the donkeys saddled, he gathers his son and his servants, and then, he goes and gets the firewood. They're sitting there waiting for him. And he's going to go. It's like, is he unsure? Is he confused? Is he bewildered? Is, he, is What's going on there? And then we see in Abraham's first words to his servants and to his adolescent son Isaac, okay, they showcase this trudging methodical purpose in the midst of internal confusion of grief. Verse 7, Isaac heartbreakingly asks his dad, daddy, by the way, it's my dad, it's my father, but in the Hebrew, it's daddy. Daddy, I've done the math. There's a torch, check. There's firewood, check. There's a, a knife in the Hebrew, meat cleaver, double check. But where's the fluffy unnamed lamb to give to God? That's either the most sophisticated or most innocent question a 12-year-old has ever asked. We don't know whether he knew or whether he dared not know. Verse 8 gives Abraham's reply. Ah, and again, the Hebrew is emphatic here. My son, my son, little guy, sweetheart, God will give us the lamb, okay? He'll give us the lamb. And I, I got to imagine the synapses inside of Abraham's brain are being aflame with cognitive dissonance, right? I've got to imagine them. On the one hand, Abraham's going... God lovingly promised to give me generation after generation through Isaac. And on the other hand, he justly commands me to give over my son. Everything I have is his. Hebrews 12, chapter 11, tells us what Abraham was thinking. It says it this way. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. You see, Abraham had an imagination informed by who God is. Okay? He had an imagination informed, like many believers after him, not just by what God is doing, but by who he is. I, and I'm going to give you a little analogy by C.S. Lewis, which it might be helpful. Okay? He says the problem is not faith versus reason. It's faith versus sight. It's those moments right, when you've talked to the swim coach and you're learning how to swim, and it's the first time you go in the deep end and you can't touch. You know over and over again that the teacher's been right, but you're living by faith and not by sight. 
Or it's the moment you're on a rock face and you're rappelling by a rope and your teacher has told you over and over again that this is going to hold. But there you are in free fall, clamoring from rock to rock. You're living by faith and not by sight. And there are moments in our lives that feel like that, that are that hard. And maybe you're going through a moment like that right now. And I want you to hear how John Calvin talks about Abraham's faith. And it's going to be some fancy words, but it's going to be helpful. Okay? Being indubitably persuaded that God was faithful, Abraham left the issue of the contradiction between the promise and the command of God to God. He was unwilling to measure by his own understanding the method of fulfilling the promise, which he knew depended on the incomprehensible power of God, not on him. Look, even our critic of critics, Soren Kierkegaard, lives with this posture of metaphysical humility at the end of the day. He says it this way, He who loves God without faith reflects upon himself, but he who loves God in faith reflects upon God. Do you see the distinction? He who loves God without faith reflects upon himself. He who loves God with faith reflects upon God. Therefore, this is the paradoxical movement of faith, to move your eyes from yourself to God. That is to say, we can make a bad situation worse by assigning blame often to ourselves and by refusing to move into the mystery of a situation. That God dwells in the heaven and does what he pleases. But also, at the very same time, God works all things to the good of those who love him. Ah. (laughs) Can you see the feel of tension there? And verses 11 through 14 of our passage show us that's the true nature of the God's test, right there. God gives us what we need exactly when we need it. He's not just proving what we've got. He's reproving. He's making what we've got better. You see, while perhaps God wanted to know that Abraham's trust was really in God and not just what God gave him, the true nature of the test is revealed by God's substitution of a sheep for Isaac, Abraham's name for the mountain. Okay, Look, first, notice that what Abraham calls the mountain. If this test was purely about Abraham's faith, what would be called a mountain? It would be called, like, Mount Abraham Obeyed. Or, like, Mount uh, Abraham Passed the Test, so be more like Abe. Right? It's not either of those. What's the mountain called? Moriah, which means the Lord will provide. God provided a ram. In the word of Sufjan Stevens, Abraham, put off your son, take the ram instead. The ram was a substitute for Isaac. The ram allowed God's loving promise and just command to coexist, and I would argue even to kiss. And that spot where the ram was provided, Mount Moriah, is so significant in the Bible because guess what? First Chronicles tells us that Mount Moriah was the temple site of Jerusalem. Okay? And furthermore, more importantly even, that there was once, once for all sacrifice of a pure and spotless lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, on that spot, right where Isaac is substituted for a ram, or ram is substituted for Isaac. Jesus who allows God's justice and his love to forever kiss. Jesus, God's son, God's only son, whom he loves. Look, and here's the, in essence, the test is always and has been God proving his faithfulness to us. That's the test. God proving his faithfulness to us, not us proving our faithfulness to God. On the cross at Mount Moriah, God says it so loud, I want you to hear it. Not your son for me, 
my son for you. Not your son for me, my son for you. And that's actually the basis for unconditional love that Ted was looking for. That's what would have changed his life, and that's what ended up changing his life, right? Remember, like some of us, at least some of the time here at Davidson, Ted could not conceive of love apart from performance or friendship apart from admiration. He had a driven need to succeed. No matter what the extremity was, his solution was work harder. He needed a love that was about a relationship and not a performance. He needed to know and be known for who he is. What's there beneath the admiration of other people? Look, it's the time of the semester where it's hard to preach in Genesis 22. <laughs> okay? It's the time of the semester where we're all stressed. There's papers to finish. There's exams to accomplish. There's tests that are looming. There's careers to settle. <laughs> there's sermons to preach. There's newsletters to get done. My boss is coming to town tomorrow. <laughs> That'll be fun. We need to know something before we know all those other things. In the words of Henry Cloud, failure is not the end of the world. Failure is not the end of the world, and success is not what love is built on. Failure is not the end of the world, and success is not what love is built on. You see, as we believe this, as we love and are love even when we fail, okay, as we're free to be our good and bad real selves in a real good and bad world and not make it some sort of projected ideal, as we begin to trust the cross says, not your son for me, but my son for you, we begin to work out of a foundation of love and not work for approval. Having found a love like that, we no longer need everything to fit our ideal. We can break into a laugh of joy. We can keep on trudging in the, in the sorrow. In other words, life has permission once again to be fully and finally real. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for these words, which are so good for us to hear, which uh, some of us think are so basic and so obvious, but um, the minute I think that, the minute I look at my life and realize that's a lot to work on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot for you to provide, even more so. And I'm so thankful for the message of Mount Moriah that you will provide, that you give what's needed when it's needed. And I pray, Father, that you would just take care of us, that you'd hold us close. And whether exam time feels like a breath of fresh air, whether it feels like a trip of nostalgia, whether it feels like a last time around the track for seniors, or whether it feels like a first time where we feel like we can't breathe for freshmen, or maybe we're somewhere between as sophomore and juniors, I pray that you would meet us. You'd help remind us that failure and success are not the only options. That love, being known and knowing, are there too. And I pray that you'd show us what that looks like, even with you, Jesus, as we get to know who you are, even when we don't know what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.